We turn in God's authoritative word this this evening to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham begat Isaac, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Judas and his brethren, and Judas begat Phares and Zerah of Tamar, and Phares begat Ezram, and Ezram begat Aram. And Aram begat Amenadab, and Amenadab begat Naasen, and Naasen begat Selman, and Selman begat Boaz of Rahab. Boaz begat Obed of Ruth, and Obed begat Jesse, and Jesse begat David the king, and David the king begat Solomon of her that had been the wife of Urias. And Solomon begat Reboam, and Reboam begat Abiah, and Abiah begat Asa. And Asa begat Josaphat, and Josaphat begat Joram, and Joram begat Ozias, and Ozias begat Joatham. Joatham begat Achaz, and Achaz begat Ezekias, and Ezekias begat Manasses, and Manasses begat Ammon, Ammon begat Josias, and Josias begat Jeconias and his brethren about the time they were carried away to Babylon. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconias begat Salathiel, and Salathiel begat Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel begat Abiad, and Abiad begat Eliakim, and Eliakim begat Azor. And Azor begat Zadok, and Zadok begat Achim, and Achim begat Eliad. And Eliad begat Eliezer, and Eliezer begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob. Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ are 14 generations. Let me just pause a moment and say for the sake of our children that you notice many of the names that we just read are Old Testament names, but they're, they're names that are different from what we read in the Old Testament. And that's because the genealogy of Matthew 1 is a genealogy that was written in the Greek language of the New Testament. And so there's a, there's a little variation between the names as recorded here and the names that are perhaps more familiar to us from our study of Old Testament history. Picking it up then at verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was espoused to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. 
But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophets, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not, till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. We consider this evening the first verse of the New Testament. Matthew 1, verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we anticipate the coming celebration of Jesus' birth, I call your attention to this first verse of Matthew's gospel account. The way in which he begins his account, which let's not forget, is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is by an emphasis on the genealogy of Christ. We might consider that an unusual beginning. We might say, what's in a name? If we answer that question in the light of Scripture, then we find that a name is significant, but there is no name more significant than that of our Savior. That's evident from Matthew 1, verse 1, but also from Mark 1, verse 1, where we read similarly the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and from John 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The identity and the name of Jesus Christ is important because of what he must do. The whole Bible is a stark reminder of that which is our own experience. We live in a fallen world, surrounded by sin and death. By what we observe, it should be no surprise that much of the population of this world lives in despair. There is sickness and sorrow, toil and labor, war and unrest. There is bondage and brokenness everywhere. It doesn't matter if a man lives in a shanty on the outskirts of Manila or New Delhi or Accra, Ghana, or if he lives in a mansion in Beverly Hills, or in the rich suburbs of New York City, the brokenness and hopelessness is the same, 
even if it comes to expression in different ways. All are ensnared by sin and death. It would seem that there is no escape. By what is seen, the end is death. The final loss even of earthly relationships, let alone of all possessions that a man might have devoted his life to obtaining, And then what follows? Oh, but that's where the question presses upon us. Because we know God leaves no man without witness that what follows is that we stand before that living God, King of kings and Lord of lords, the perfectly holy and righteous God before whom every person must give an account. And we know, every one of us, that the holy God has demanded of us and every human being perfect obedience. He has required of us that we love him perfectly. And that with our whole being But we have not done that. Not one of us has. God himself has already pronounced the verdict. We read it in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. If there is to be any hope, we need a Savior. But who might that be? At the end of the Old Testament, when all appeared hopeless, and the promises of the Old Testament seemed to have been lost, When David's royal line ended in a virgin named Mary, God began to unfold the wonder of his grace, a wonder long ago proclaimed and repeatedly promised that salvation would come to Israel, to his church. But the church at this point in time could hardly be found. The Old Testament appearance of Antichrist, that ruthless ruler by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, had carried out horrific persecution against the church so that the blood flowed in the streets of Jerusalem. But there remained a remnant, preserved as God had promised, preserved in his loving kindness and and in the faithfulness of Jehovah, who had always shown himself faithful to his covenant, whose promise never failed, his promise of the coming Messiah had run like a golden thread throughout the Old Testament. And now the time had come when God would bring to pass the fulfillment of that promise. That's why the New Testament begins with the identity of that Messiah, 
the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We consider together this evening the identity of the promised Savior, Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ is how Matthew begins his gospel account. It is an account of the generation of Jesus Christ, of his ancestors, according to the flesh. And this immediately tells us that our Savior, the promised Messiah sent from God, was a man that is like us. But we are told later in this chapter, and that in confirmation of the prophecy of Isaiah 7 verse 14 and 9 verse 6, that this same Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit. He is the one who is Emmanuel, that is being interpreted God with us. Matthew Henry points out in his commentary something that is worthy of note. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis with the generation of the world. And it does so revealing the glory of the Creator. But the New Testament excels, says Matthew Henry, in that it begins with the generation of Him who made the world. It is one and the same person spoken of here. But you must realize that as God, his goings forth were from of old, from everlasting. As we read in Micah 5 verse 2, none can declare his generation, for it's from eternity. And as the only begotten Son, he is of one essence with the Father, as our Nicene Creed states, perfect in Godhead, as the Creed of Chalcedon confesses. But... To refer to the Nicene Creed again, for us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. John 1 verse 14, and we beheld the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The inspired Apostle Paul proclaimed the same truth in 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. God became flesh. He did so to accomplish the purpose of salvation, to bring light into darkness, to give life to those who were dead, to save a people from the bondage and despair of sin and death. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. That must be our confession, too. 
And so we are given an account of the unfolding of God's purpose in the generations that culminated in the entry of our Savior into this world in our flesh. The genealogy that follows reveals the wonder of God's plan, the astounding nature of his work in the word becoming flesh from circumstances that we would consider impossible. And that of the spotless, the perfect spotless Lamb of God coming from a line that is polluted through and through. But the unfolding of the generation of Jesus Christ is exactly to demonstrate that he has come as the fulfillment of the promise. He has come just as God had said. And therefore, that's also to encourage us that God's promise does not fail, indeed cannot fail. God has revealed to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel. You may rest in his word. You may confess with Paul what we just heard from 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 this is a faithful saying. The one who came to accomplish our salvation is Jesus Christ. He is Jesus, the Savior. The significance of that name is told us later in the chapter in the account of the angel's appearance to Joseph. Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Jesus means Jehovah's salvation, or Jehovah saves. In the Old Testament, God had raised up one with the same name which in the Hebrew is Joshua. Joshua served as a type of the one who would be the fulfillment of all God's promise and the fulfillment of his prophecy of the Old Testament concerning the coming Messiah. But Joshua, as our children remember, was one who took Moses' place and led God's people into the promised land the land of Canaan. But Joshua was only a type, a picture of Jesus. After all, Joshua could only lead the children of Israel into the earthly promised land, God having put an end to their years of wandering in the wilderness. But moreover, Joshua himself could not lead the children of Israel across the Jordan River. That great barrier to entering the promised land. The priests had to make their way first into the waters of the Jordan. Do you remember why? They had to lead the way first into the water of the Jordan while carrying the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence with his people 
by his only begotten son. It was the cover of that ark upon which was sprinkled the blood of atonement, signifying the coming Messiah removing the sins of his people and thus permitting them to commune with the Holy One of Israel, Jehovah God. It wasn't when Joshua entered the water, but when the ark was led into the water, carried by the priests, that the waters of the Jordan were stopped and piled up as a giant as giant walls as it were enabling the children of Israel to cross over on dry land you see only Jesus could lead the way through that barrier of the Jordan and when you think of what that land of Canaan represented according to scripture namely heaven, the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God, the better country for which Abraham longed, together with those who have the faith of Abraham, then you realize it takes a greater than Joshua to lead us through the Jordan, the barrier of sin and death, that lies between us and the glory that awaits us. Only Jesus could overcome that barrier. Only Jesus could conquer sin and death and give us life everlasting. So Matthew, before setting forth the story of the coming of the Savior and the conception and birth of our Lord Jesus, calls attention to him as the one set before the church in the calling given her in Psalm 130, verses 7 and 8, let Israel hope in Jehovah. For with Jehovah there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all her iniquities. His name is Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins. That's his name to you, is it not? He's also noted as Christ, that is the anointed. That's the title that God has given his son Jesus. It marked Jesus as a king of a very different sort. The anointing of kings and priests were very common in the Old Testament, Anointing was required for those offices. Priests, according to God's law in Exodus chapters 28 through 30, and kings, as we learn in 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 16. There were also occasions when prophets were anointed, though that's not characteristic of all. But that anointing signified that the one to bear the office was set apart by God for his calling and qualified by the Holy Spirit for the calling to which he was ordained. The people of God in the Old Testament expected their Savior to come as the Messiah. 
which was the Hebrew term for anointed. Daniel had prophesied that in Daniel chapter 9. Moreover, they expected, according to Old Testament prophecy, that the Messiah would come from the royal line of David to sit on David's throne forever. In addition, David himself had been inspired to testify in Psalm 110 that the one to follow him would be, according to God's word, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, the Messiah would be unique, a king priest. We also learn from scripture that as the word of God, he would come, and therefore as a prophet, to say, thus saith the Lord, and to write God's word upon the hearts of his people. Yes, Jesus must be Christ, the anointed one, the one anointed by God to execute God's counsel in the unique office entrusted to him, a threefold office. The one whose identity Matthew would set forth the one whose genealogy must be seen as the unfolding of the wonder of grace, would be Jesus the Christ. He would not be a king like those who had preceded him. In the royal line, earthly kings, whose reigns were only temporary, and in most cases, complete failures when it came to their calling to execute God's covenant faithfully as king, Jesus was anointed to to bring us the victory over our greatest enemies, sin and death, and something which no earthly king could accomplish, and he was anointed our priest who not only enters the holy place made with hands to offer up the blood of bulls and goats, but he is the one who would offer himself a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice by which he would put away sin, to use the language of Hebrews 9, verse 26. And in verse 28 of that same chapter we read, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. And how shall they look to him? Except he speaks to them as the prophet, whose word alone is powerful to save, And how shall they believe in him whom they have not heard? Romans 10 verse 14. But he is the one who said in John 10 verses 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Do you see how important it is that we know him? That we know whom we have believed? 
many in Jesus' day would deny his identity. They would do so because he did not fit their expectations. They would have a Jesus of their own imagination. They wanted a king like David, only superior. They wanted a king that could free them from the dominion of the Roman Empire, that could reestablish them an earthly nation, to be freed from sin and death, they had no desire. If we are to escape the folly of misguided expectations, we mustn't be looking for a savior of our own imagination. That's how multitudes in the church will give themselves to the reign of Antichrist in the last days. We must have him whom God sends and whom God identifies as Jesus the Christ. That's how we must think of him this Christmas season too. Because he alone is Savior and Lord. But the identity of Jesus the Christ is further unfolded when Matthew speaks of him as the son of David. As I mentioned, the Messiah, the Christ of God, must come from the line of the kings of Judah. But Jesus is specified as the son of David. What's the significance of that? It must be of importance because when you look at the genealogy that follows, we find in verse 17 that the entire genealogy is arranged around this Jesus being the son of David. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David until the carrying away to Babylon are 14 generations, and from the carrying away into Babylon unto Christ, the son of David, is 14 generations. What is it then that makes Jesus being the son of David a part of his identity? There was a strong hope among the faithful remnant that was voiced by Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, at the naming ceremony of his son. And we read that in the, in the last verses of, of Luke chapter 1, that baby John was to be the prophet of the highest, preparing the way for him who would be born soon after him, that is, Jesus Christ. In that knowledge, and as Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit, he prophesied, saying, as we read in Luke 1, verses 68 through 70, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began. We sang of that promise of God in Psalm 2, verses 6 and 7. 
Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And then follows, I will declare the decree. The Lord said unto, hath said unto me, Thou art my son. This day have I begotten thee. The one who would crush the head of the serpent, according to the promise of Genesis 3, verse 15, the promised Messiah would be the son of David. That Jesus is the son of David underscores his authority and the purpose for which God sent him. We read in Psalm 132, Verse 11, the Lord hath sworn in truth unto David, he will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. That was an affirmation of what God had proclaimed to David through the prophet Nathan when David had brought the Ark of the Covenant once again to Mount Zion and had expressed a desire to build a permanent dwelling place, a temple in which the Ark could be kept. We read in 2 Samuel 7 verses 10 and following, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee an house. Now let's remember in this connection when the Lord refers to my people Israel, he's speaking of his church which at that time had the form of the Old Testament nation, but which had been promised to Abraham as a gathering of a multitude of nations. And when he, re when he promises to make of David an house, the reference is not to a building, not to a palace. The reference is to a household, a line of descendants. So some of you, if you are carrying your own Bibles, might even find in the margin a reference to a dynasty. Well, our King James Version is accurate in its translation of the English word house, but that term dynasty does capture the meaning of the reference as the following indicates. Continuing now in verse 12, and when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now you who know your Old Testament history realize that he's speaking first of all, of David's son Solomon. It would be Solomon who would reign as the prince of peace and build the temple, the house, for Jehovah's name. 
But we must also remember that Solomon also was only a type of the Prince of Peace. And that's proven in this verse by the, the promise, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That prophetic promise can only apply to the Son of David, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. Then we also see the purpose of his work underscored by the reference to him as the Son of David. If we return to Psalm 132, the Lord caps the promise to David of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne by saying in verses 13 through 18, for the Lord hath chosen Zion. He hath desired it for his habitation. This is my rest forever. Here will I dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her with provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation, and her saint shall shout aloud for joy. There will I make the horn of David to bud. I have ordained a lamp for mine anointed. His enemies will I clothe with shame, but upon himself shall his crown flourish. As I said concerning the Christ, many had a wrong expectation of him. They looked for the son of David to heal the land by removing the Romans and other pagans who were interfering with what Israel desired. And they expected their new king to provide for them in abundance and to make them a kingdom materially prosperous. And that's how they read Psalm 132, verse 15. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. But the healing that the true son of David would bring would be a spiritual healing. And the provision would be himself as the bread of life. The clothing which he would provide for the citizens of his kingdom would be the clothing of salvation. The son of David gives healing to the brokenhearted. He gives strength to the weak. He gives victory even over death. This son of David is the one who says to you, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But his identity is also found in the designation, the son of Abraham. This is the only place in the Bible where Jesus is spoken of specifically as the son of Abraham. The genealogy in Matthew 1 is interesting. 
Some of you might have had opportunity to look at your own genealogies, and if so, you might have found some very interesting things. Several years ago, I called your attention in a brief series of sermons to the women named in Jesus' genealogy here in Matthew chapter 1. But you will notice that this genealogy only goes back so far. Most of us can trace our lineage only so far. Perhaps as far back as the 17th century or even the 16th century in some cases, but we're limited by the loss of historical records. But the genealogy here goes back only so far intentionally. It begins with Abraham. And from there, the focus of the genealogy is on the lines of the kings in the generations of David. And most of those kings, at least half of them, were wicked. Some of them, though saved, committed terrible sins. Manasseh is one of them. You remember God spared Hezekiah's life from a deadly disease in order that Hezekiah would have a son, that David's royal line would continue. That son was Manasseh, a son who showed himself horribly wicked. Before God brought Manasseh to repentance, we read that Manasseh not only wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger, 2 Kings 21 verse 6, but that he seduced the children of Israel to do more evil than did all the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the children of Israel. Moreover, we read in verse 16 of 2 Kings chapter 21, Moreover, Manasseh shed innocent blood very much till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other. That was Manasseh. Multiple in this line of Jesus' genealogy committed adultery took multiple wives. Many were guilty of murder. Tamar played the prostitute. Rahab was noted as in harlot. How would you like to have a genealogy like this? Maybe some of us do. But here's the thing. If our genealogy was filled with people such as in Jesus' genealogy, you and I couldn't do a thing about it, except perhaps cover it up and thank God that he took us out of such a sordid heritage. But Jesus came to save those in his lineage whom God had given him from eternity. His own people, his own line, 
needed him to save them from their sins. But why is he called the son of Abraham? Abraham, initially called Abram, was introduced in Genesis 11 in another genealogy. The descendants of the church in the line of Shem, the son of Noah. And in that genealogy, we are also told that Abram took a wife, Sarai. And it then is noted that she was barren. But from that genealogy, as in Matthew 1, God leads us into the history of Abram and his wife Sarai, a history that began when Abram was 75 years old. And so Genesis 12 begins this way. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. Now that promise, you realize, depended upon Abram and Sarai having a son. But God made Abram wait 25 years before giving him that son. Nevertheless, God repeatedly affirmed that promise establishing his covenant with Abram, taking Abram into the possession of his own covenant life and fellowship by the promise of that coming seed, the Messiah. And in doing so, God talked with him, saying in Genesis 17, verses 4 and following, as for me, Behold, my covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham. For a father of many nations have I made thee, and I will make thee exceeding fruitful, and I will make nations come of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee, and thy seed after thee, in their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be a God unto thee, and to thy seed after thee. In further affirmation of his promise, we read in verses 15 and 16, And God said unto Abraham, As for Sarai thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall her name be, and I will bless her and give thee a son also of her, 
Yea, I will bless her, and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of people shall be of her. Notice the same letter was added to Sarah, Sarah's name as was added to Abraham. And to denote the same thing. Sarai means my princess. As if her honor were only confined to her immediate family. Sarah signifies a princess of multitudes. Meaning that from her would come the Messiah in whom would be gathered multitudes from all nations. Every Jew considers himself a descendant of Abraham. For that matter, so does every Muslim. But Matthew is moved by the Spirit to point out that the coming of the Messiah is for the fulfillment of the promise. A promise not to the natural children of Abraham, but to the spiritual seed. And that's demonstrated already in the genealogy of Matthew 1. There's something unique about this genealogy. Usually the genealogies were patriarchal. They followed the lines of the fathers without mentioning the mothers. But Matthew names four women, two who were not Israelites. Rahab from Jericho, a Canaanite, and Ruth, a Moabitess. So Jesus has Gentiles in his family line demonstrating already in the Old Testament that which he had promised to Abraham. Added is the fact that multitudes of the natural children of Abraham were cut off in unbelief. Is God's promise then of none effect? The Apostle Paul faced that very question in Romans chapter 9. Is God's word of none effect? And his answer was immediate. No. For they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all children but in Isaac shall thy seed be called. That is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Galatians 3, in a critically important chapter in the Bible to a proper understanding of the relationship between the Old Testament and the New, says in verses 7 through 9, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So then, they which be of faith, are blessed with faithful Abraham. 
And what is that faith of which the apostle speaks? It's resting upon the truth that the seed of Abraham has come to save us from our sins. It is relying upon him alone as king of kings and lord of lords, who alone is our righteousness before God and in whom alone is our salvation. He has become the son of Abraham to gather to himself a church from Jew and Gentile, bond and free, male and female. Galatians 3 verse 16, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And then verses 26 through 29 of that chapter, Galatians 3. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Our hope is in the Savior who is the son of Abraham who came to save sinners even from among a sinful people of European, even barbarian descent. Our hope is in him who came to save sinners from Hispanic or Asian or African or any other heritage and who alone can break down that middle wall of partition between us, making us one body in him, reconciling us unto God. The one whose birth we celebrate is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. His is the only name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Believe in him and rejoice in so great a Savior. Amen. Heavenly Father, how blessed are we to be called by thee out of darkness into thy marvelous light to be led to the Savior, to be given faith, united to Christ, relying upon him, and we look to him for our full and complete salvation. Abide with us, strengthen us, also as we contemplate the incarnation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.